So if you would, if you haven't already, take out your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 5. Today's sermon is going to cover the first five verses in 1 John. If you're using one of the pew Bibles below the seats, you can find this passage on page 1023. Again, that's 1023. Now, we are nearing the end of our time in 1 John, and like we did last summer, we're, we're going to turn to the Psalms for the summer. My hope is if the Lord allows it, if he tarries, if he doesn't come back before this, uh, if we live, if I live long enough, I hope to be a part of this, that we will make our way through the, the Psalms every summer and within the next 10 to 15 years, depending on how many sermons each summer we, we have, we're going to cover all of the Psalms. But it'll take 10 to 15 years. That's a long series, 10 to 15 years. Uh, but, but my hope is that we'll be able to do that. Uh, turning back our attention to 1 John, as we have seen, the Apostle John repeatedly uses three tests. You might call them marks within this, this short epistle, uh, doctrine, love, and obedience. Doctrine, love, and obedience. And so we've come back to doctrine, love, and obedience throughout uh, this letter. Remember, John writes circular, so he'll introduce a test or a theme, and he'll dig into it a little bit, and then he'll move to another one, and then he'll circle back and expound on what he's already said, and he'll connect dots. So he, he has a method, the Spirit's leading him, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, but it's not like Paul, who lays out his argument makes it, makes it, makes it, and then you're like, yep, you're right, I see it. Uh, it's, it's a little bit different the way that, that John writes, but it's all wonderful and beautiful. It's God's word. And if you remember, he gives these three tests to help the, the true Christian have greater assurance of their salvation. He wants those who are born again to know that they are in Christ. And so these three tests do that, but they also help the non-Christian, the false Christian who professes to be a, a Christian, but is not truly a Christian, not truly converted, to see that. And, and ultimately, the hope is that they will turn to Christ and, and that God will, by his work, bring them to new life. And so we're going to see these tests in this morning's passage again, but we're also going to see something else. Because here, and John's alluded to this before, he's, he's talked about this before in the letter, John's going to get at how it is that a, a, a true Christian passes these tests how it is that, that a Christian is able to, to have the, the right doctrine and love correctly and obey God's commandments. So you see, this is quite a passage as it not only reminds us of important truths that we've covered previously, this passage points us to our glorious God who saves sinners by his grace. And so I hope to encourage your heart to listen and pay attention this morning. Uh, if you would, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, and we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is God's word for his people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. You may be seated. And now let's pray for God's help. Lord, you are worthy of every single syllable that we have just sung together. You are the God of love, the King of love, our great shepherd. You are the creator, the sustainer, the savior of sinners. 
you are our God. I do pray that you are at work in our hearts this morning, that we would be delighting and enjoying you together, that the truths that we have sung to you have made their way to one another in this sanctuary. For we sing to you, but we also sing for one another. These truths are precious. You are over and above all. You are your people's God. I pray that our hearts would be tuned to you this morning. Father, we confess that even though we are born again, even though we we have received your grace in Christ, even though you have declared us righteous because of Christ's righteousness, we continue to struggle with sin. And so we confess together as a church that we have sinned. We have sinned in word, in thought, in deed. And it grieves us. We know that we are forgiven because of Christ's finished work. Our trust is in him. And yet we don't want to sin. And we have. And so we confess it before you, our God, who saves us, who reconciles us to himself through his son. We are We continue to battle with and struggle with sin. And yet our trust is in Jesus, your son and our savior. Lord, we pray that you would bless this morning as we gather to hear your word and it is preached. We pray, Father, for the men who are still at the retreat are now making their way back. We pray that their time was sweet, that it was refreshing that you did great works in their hearts, bringing them closer together, that friendships were strengthened or even formed, that those men who went uh, in weak in faith and need of refreshment received it, that those who went and are struggling to be godly husbands and godly fathers, you would have used this time away to, to bring them back to be stronger, godly husbands and fathers. Lord, we thank you for the time that you gave to them. And we do pray that it would filter into the life of this church, the joy, that the, the refreshment, the, the time together would, would be a blessing to all men, women, and children that make up this church that will rub shoulders and worship with those men next Sunday. We do pray that you'd bring them back safely. Father, we praise you for all of your good gifts. Uh, warmth is a good gift. Summer is a good gift. And yet we know that that. When things happen in Wisconsin like warmth, it's easy to let our attention go to other places. And so we pray that that you would guard us this summer from making summer and the summer events and swimming and sprinklers and, and walks where it's warm and we don't have to bundle up. Not most important to us, but worshiping and enjoying and treasuring Christ most important to us. Lord, we lift up those among us to you that are struggling with cancer and health issues who are in need of wisdom. Lord, may you be their hope, their trust, their joy in this season of difficulty. And we do pray that you would bring healing. We do pray that you would give wisdom so that they make decisions that honor you. But ultimately, we pray that you would use this season for your glory. You give us opportunities in our trials and our sufferings to to proclaim the gospel more boldly and clearly. So help us not waste these opportunities, our suffering, even cancer and and difficulty and and trials are, are avenues for us to make much of Christ. Help us, we pray. And now, Lord, do what only you can do. Feed your sheep by your word. Make much of Christ through me and, and ultimately through the worship and praise of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you born of God? Are you born of God? Well, if you are a Christian, the answer is yes, you're born of God. 
John uses this phrase, born of God, twice in this passage. And, and he uses a similar phrase, born of him once. And, and every time he uses these phrases, he refers to a Christian, a true Christian. So it's another description of someone who is a Christian. Now, I don't recall ever being asked by anyone if I was born of God. I don't remember. Maybe somebody did, but I don't remember it. But I have been asked, and maybe you've been asked a, a similar question. Are you born again? The phrases born again and born of God refer to the same miraculous event. They are part of the vocabulary of salvation. And they point us to a wonderful doctrine, the doctrine of regeneration. Now, if you grew up in the church, if you've been a part of this church for a while, I, I think you've heard this word before, regeneration. Regeneration is an important biblical word, and it's worth defining so that we're all on the same page. Theologian John Frame defines regeneration as, and he gives a short definition, but it's helpful, a sovereign act of God beginning a new spiritual life in us. A sovereign act of God beginning a new spiritual life in us. Another theologian, Michael Horton, and I've quoted from Horton before, he gives this slightly longer definition of regeneration in his systematic theology book. He states that regeneration is the Spirit's sovereign work of raising those who are spiritually dead to life in Christ through the announcement of the gospel. So here's how it works. We hear the gospel. God's word goes forth. We hear we're, we're sinners and we need a savior and that God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. He lived a sinless life. He atoned for our sins on the cross and he was raised from the dead, truly bodily raised from the dead. And it is only by turning from sin, repenting of sin and trusting in him that we will be saved. And we say, yep, yes. What just happened? Regeneration. Before we said, yup, or yes, God worked mightily. He did a sovereign act. And this miracle of regeneration is described in many places throughout Scripture. But one of the places that I like to point to where it's described is in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. So verses 1 through 3 describe our state before regeneration, who we are apart from God's working in us. And then there's a turn in verse 4. I use this passage a lot. I love it. It, it helps us get, the, get a better grip on what God has done if we are Christians. So notice the shift in verse 4. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, underline all, bolded if, you, if you're on a phone app and, and you can do that, italicize it, among whom we all, every one of us, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And here's the shift, here's the change. Regeneration, right here. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You're dead in your sins. You're a follower of the world. Ultimately, Satan's behind the world. And the world, we don't just mean creation. We mean the, the powers, the, the rejection of God, the rebellion, the anti-serving and worshiping God, the world. You're a follower of the world. You, you live for the passions of your flesh. You do whatever you feel like doing, ultimately. You serve a different God. Ultimately, it's probably you you carry out the desires of the body and the mind, and you're a child of wrath, like everyone in mankind. Verse four, but God. Regeneration, but God. 
You were dead in your trespasses. He made you alive if you're a Christian together with Christ. And so every true Christian is someone who has been regenerated, is born of God, is born again, is made alive together with Christ, as Paul describes it in Ephesians 2. Christian, whether you can point to a specific moment when you became a Christian, and some of us can do that. We remember walking into a room and then leaving that room and saying, I'm different. It took us a while to really understand what happened. But we, some of us have that conversion experience. We can point to a day or a week or a month or a season and say, yep, it happened then. I was converted. I was born again. God brought me out of death in, into life, into Christ. And then there's others of us who, who can't remember a time when we didn't re- believe that, that we were a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus Christ died to pay for our sins. That's what I'm praying for my four boys. That's their testimony. That they grow up in a Christian home and they hear the gospel and they believe it. And, and it's possible that that won't be their testimony. I'm hoping if it, that's not their testimony, then like my, like my testimony, it's 20, 20 years old, walk into a room and the light switch is flipped. I leave that room, they leave that room as a Christian. But either way, whatever your conversion experience, if you are a true Christian, as Ephesians 2 teaches us, you were once spiritually dead, even if you can't remember it, but the Spirit sovereignly worked in you to raise you to life in Christ. Now, often people will ask the question, are you a born-again Christian? So even though every Christian is a born-again Christian, if they're really a Christian, they'll ask this question to determine if the person that they're talking with is a true, genuine Christian who has repented of their sins and is trusting in Christ alone. And so it's a question that, that often aims at confronting nominal or cardinal or cultural, you can just call it false Christianity, And it can help start an evangelistic conversation about the gospel. Here's how. Somebody says, are you a born-again Christian? Maybe you use that phrase and you ask somebody and they say, I'm a Christian, but born again? What What do you mean by that? Maybe they've grown up in a tradition where they don't talk about being born again. And so you can do some probing. Well, are you a sinner? Yes. Have you turned from your sin and are are you turning by faith to Christ and trusting only in him? Are you trusting in your works? I'm only trusting your, oh, wonderful. Well, that's what I mean by being a born again Christian, that that you have turned from your sin and trusted in Christ. Or they might say, I have no clue what you're talking about. I know I go to church. I know I was baptized as a baby or when I was young or even old. I know that I was confirmed. I'm a member of this church. Yeah, all these things, I'm I'm a Christian. Now, those things, if properly used, can help strengthen and, and point us to who is a Christian, but, but if that's all we have, then something's missing. And so this question helps probe a little bit because so many, especially still today in our country, though it's moving towards post-Christian, profess to be Christians simply because they grew up going to church. Their parents are Christians, as if uh, uh, Christianity is just passed on genetically or something. And so they claim to be Christians. Maybe they were baptized, confirmed, but they've never repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. They are not born again. And here's the clear thing we need to understand. There's no such thing biblically as someone who's a Christian and not born again. To be a Christian is to be born again. And Jesus speaks of our need to be born again in John 3 during his conversation with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is part of the Pharisees, that, that group that, that seemed to take God's word seriously. And yet, they, that it was often the case that, Fer, that the Pharisees, not all of them, but many of them, would, would become legalistic as they would create laws around the law. Not all of them. Some of them were serious about God, seeking after God, trusting that God would send his Messiah. 
but many of them would. And here's Nicodemus, who's part of that group, the Pharisees, a religious Jew, who comes to Jesus by night. And the reason why he comes to Jesus by night is because he doesn't want all of his Pharisee buddies to know that he's talking to Jesus, because the Pharisees have honed in on Jesus as a false Messiah, and they're out to get him. They, they want Jesus to be gone. They want to get rid of him. They're going to help plan his death. And so Nicodemus comes by night. He's, a, he's a seeking after God. He's seeking after answers. And he goes to Jesus looking for answers. He asks some, some questions. John 3, 3 through 8, we see Jesus' response. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That is my favorite description in Scripture of the mysterious work of the Spirit in regeneration. You look for the wind. It's not there. You're watching a tree. There's no, all of a sudden, the tree's moving. Wind, right? I know it's a, it's a big thought. Right? Wind, whoa, oh, wind. But it surprised you. There's no wind. All of a sudden, we're, we're sitting watching one of my, my son's game, games, baseball, and it's hot. We're hot. All of a sudden, whew, that, that cool, sweet wind is blowing. It cools, cools us off, and we enjoy the rest of the, the, the game. It's a surprise when it happens. The wind blows. And so it is with the work of the Holy Spirit. You don't boss the Spirit around. You don't say, do this, Spirit. And some of us think that way, don't we? Spirit, do this. Now, we, we plead with, we cry out to God, please do this. And yet the Spirit is God. He does what he pleases. Being born again or being born of God is something that happens to us, not by us. Just as we humans were not the cause of our physical birth, think about it. I didn't say, Mom, Dad, would you born me? If that's even proper English. Would you? I, I want to be born. Let's go. Born. Come on. Here we go. Oh, okay, Mom and Dad were like, all right. Yeah, here you go. No. That's not how it happened. In the same way, Christians are not the cause of our spiritual birth. We see this in John 3, 5, where Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Being born of water refers to the purification that comes from the new birth. If you enter into the kingdom of God, you're entering into a pure and holy kingdom. Why? Because the God of that kingdom is pure and holy. And so being sinners, having been born rebels, we're not holy. And so we need to be purified. We need to be cleansed by God. And that comes with a new birth. Born of the Spirit refers to the one who causes a spiritual dead sinner to be born again. He is the Holy Spirit. As Horton put it in his definition of regeneration, it is the Spirit's sovereign work to raise those who are spiritually dead to life in Christ through the announcement of the gospel. And so to be born of the Spirit is the same as being born of God, for the Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity. The new birth is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, not a work of man, a sovereign act of God that begins a new spiritual life in us, as Frame put it. You're dead in your sin. God does something, regenerates you, brings you to life. For just as the wind blows where it wishes, the Holy Spirit works where he wishes, 
bringing once spiritually dead sinners to life in Jesus Christ. It's a humbling, it's a glorious truth, and it gives God all the glory in our salvation, and it fuels us to worship and to enjoy God. Some will say, if this is what God does, then why send out missionaries? Why preach the gospel? Because the means by which he uses is his people spreading the gospel. In his providence, he brings people like the Creech family to Senegal to reach the Yanomami people. It is his plan. He's at work in all of it, raising up a people, saving them first, sending them out by the church so that they can bring the gospel there. And he has chosen to save some of the Bainuke. Sorry, I messed up. The, it's the Bainuke people in Senegal. It's the Hartmans who we send out to reach the Yanomami people. And so we, we pray for and we work hard. The, this glorious truth that it is God who does the work, not us, fuels missions. It doesn't cause us to, to be lazy on the couch watching football or baseball or soccer all day. It says God is at work and he uses his people. So get up, Christian, and preach the gospel. Go to your neighbor, invite them over, have them over for dinner. Because the gospel being proclaimed is the means by which the Spirit works to bring new life where there is no life. And this same truth is what leads us to worship and praise God even more. When you get a grip on this truth that you didn't save yourself, you had no part in it, God did it all, when you don't feel like singing the song, you will sing. When you don't feel like reading the Bible, you will read it. When you don't feel like fighting sin, you will fight it because you will know that you are God's chosen, elect, saved sinner, not because you got yourself into the family of God, but because he brought you in. And there was nothing, nothing in you that made him say, you know what, you're pretty enough, you're handsome enough, you're strong enough, you're intelligent enough, whatever it is you can come up, wasn't there. He wasn't just missing one more like you to bring into heaven. You brought nothing, he did everything. And if you think about that, when you're feeling like, you know what, this isn't my jam, I don't wanna sing it right now, you'll say, this is my jam because God is mine, God, and I wanna sing. I wanna sing with his people. And I wanna sing to the person next to me who hears, who needs to hear this truth, whether it's my child or a stranger or whoever, they need to hear this and I need to sing it to God. So this fuels missions, this fuels worship, this fuels our joy in God. He's bigger, this is big God theology. Christian, you did absolutely nothing to bring yourself to life. You were spiritually dead, blind, deaf. You had a heart of stone, scripture says. You were incapable of doing anything of spiritual good. Could you do some good? Yes, you could bake a pie and bring it to your, your new neighbor. Yes, you could give money to the church. You could, uh, you could have somebody stay with you that was in need. You could uh, do so many different good things, but they were of no spiritual good because you were spiritually dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Christian, you and I did nothing. We were dead. God did everything. Because of him, we are alive. If God has done this in you, if he has caused you to be born of him, then certain things will be true of you. Now, some of them will be more true of some of us than of others of us, but they will be true of you nonetheless because the new birth is not merely a subjective experience. You know, I just feel good. It's not merely something you check on a, on a card. Did you pray the sinner's prayer seven times? Check. Eight now. I just did it again. 
Uh, it's, not, it's not just going to camp and having an emotional experience. Now, God might work in all of that by his grace. He might overcome some of our pragmatic, silly means. But if he's converted you, truly brought you to life, well, then there's going to be a change in you because regeneration brings change. New life means new living. And so how can we know that we are born of God? In this passage, John says that three things will be true of those who are born of God. And so, friend, if you're born of God, these three things will be true of you on some level. Some of them more than others, especially the first. And not because you have made them true, but because you are born of God. They are fruits of being born again, byproducts of the new birth. They are results of you being regenerated. And the first is given to us in verse 1. You believe that Jesus is the Christ. Everything starts with Jesus. We talk about Jesus all the time because everything begins with him. He is God in human flesh, sent from the Father to rescue his people by atoning for our sins on the cross. And so the first evidence, this needs to be there, that you are born of God is that you believe what the Bible says about Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed, the Savior of sinners. Now, if you remember from previous sermons in 1 John, one of the main heresies that John is addressing in 1 John is a wrong doctrine of Christ. There were people who professed to be believers. Again, they were saying, I'm a Christian, I'm, I'm one of you, we're, we're the church together. And yet they were denying who Christ was. One place we see this is in 1 John 2, 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Those who deny that Jesus is the Christ are liars, because to deny that he is the Christ is to lie about who Jesus is. It's like saying I'm 6'10 and blonde. That's not true. That's not true. You're, you're lying about me if you say that. That's, that's not the facts. And so anybody who says Jesus is not the Christ is lying about Jesus. He is the Christ. And these people were somehow in their minds, in their confusion, in their blindness saying, oh, I'm a Christian, but he's not the Christ. He's not the Christ. To do this is to be under the influence of the Antichrist. It's to be drunk on spiritual lies. The Antichrist is an agent of Satan. To deny that Jesus is the Christ is to reject the Lord's anointed and the only Savior of sinners. If you get Jesus wrong, you get the gospel wrong. You have to get Jesus right. And if you get Jesus right, well, then you will get the gospel right. Because Jesus is, and what he did is, God's good news for man. You want to hear from God? You want to know God? You start with Jesus, and you have to get him right. And those who are born of God don't just get the facts about Jesus right, that he is the Christ. You know, you can get facts about people right, and, and it's no big deal. Like Christian Yelich, for example. Christian Yelich is the reigning NL MVP. You can see where my allegiance lies. Brewers, go brew, all right? You, you can Google it. Who is the reigning NL MVP? Christian Yelich's name will come up. Big deal. That's a fact. You got it right? Good. You, you should get it right. And I hope he's the next year, he's this season's reigning NL MVP again. That's just a fact, though. You, you can get a fact about Donald Trump right. He is, and you Google it, who's the president of the United States of America. Whether you like it or not, it'll say Donald Trump. That's a fact. Big deal, right? It's just, just another fact. Those who are born of God believe that Jesus is 
their Christ. We believe that he is our Christ, our only hope to be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to a holy God. This believing in Jesus as the Christ, as our Christ, is again a result of being born of God. It's a fruit of regeneration. There was a time, yes, I would have said, oh yeah, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. It's a fact. Checked it off. I, I think I got a B plus in theology uh, at my Lutheran high school. I would have checked the box. and did, Yeah, that's, I would have got that one right. But I walked into a room, and I have one of those conversion experiences where I can pinpoint a, a moment, or a, at least a time frame. And the reality was, if you could have seen what was going on in, on in my heart, he wasn't the Christ. I was serving my own needs, worshiping, a, a trinity of my own making, sports, girls, and beer. And that's where, that's who, that's, that was my Christ. That's where joy was found. That's where hope was found. And yet, I left that room because the, the Spirit did what only he could do, leaving, knowing that Christ was my Christ. I didn't flip the switch. The Spirit flipped the switch. And he does that in every Christian. He changes us. He causes us to be born again. In his book, Salvation by Grace, Matthew Barrett puts it this way while writing about regeneration. It captures frame and Horton's definition and it adds a little bit more. Regeneration is the act of God alone and therefore it is monergistic. That is, God alone does it in nature. Accomplished by the sovereign act of the Spirit apart from and unconditioned upon man's will to believe. In short, man's faith does not cause regeneration, but regeneration causes man's faith. Think of the wind again. Why is that tree shaking? Because the wind blew it. Why did I repent and believe? Because the Spirit brought me to life. And that's marvelous. That's amazing. It gives God all the glory and causes us to humbly and joyfully say, praise be to the God who saves. Now, a second truth about you, if you're born of God, is also given in verse 1. You love God and those born of him. John has made this clear throughout 1 John. We just finished up a section on this. Those who are born of God will love God and love his people. Uh, Earlier in 1 John 4, 7, and 8, we read this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And so a genuine Christian will love God and other Christians. Some of us are better at loving, especially one another, than others. I'm not just talking about hugging and saying I love you, though I I think that's acceptable, especially if you're a hugger. That's what you normally do if you love people. You will show that, but I mean like genuinely loving other Christians. But if you are a Christian, you will love God and you will love other Christians. Even those who you disagree with theologically, you wrestle wrestle through, you don't like their personality, they just kind of rub you the wrong way. You will love them because you're a Christian and they're a Christian. John goes on to explain in verses two and three of this morning's passage that this love for God and others born of God is shown not just by word, but by obedience to God's commandments. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now listen, if you are trying to obey God's commandments in order to earn your salvation, God's commandments will be burdensome. They will be a heavier load than you can bear. And some of us Christians sometimes default to that. We look at the law and we say, I've got to somehow measure up here. I've got to accomplish this. Forgetting the gospel, 
the law says you can't. You, you can't. You cannot perfectly keep the law. Doesn't mean you break it on purpose, but you're not going to perfectly keep it. And you cannot be righteous before God by keeping the law. The law is revealing that to you. The law crushes your pride and self. The law says you need a savior, sinner. And so the Christian says, I can't be righteous enough. I can't keep the law. And then they look to Christ and they say, but he can and he did. And so I trust in Christ's righteousness. He kept the law. He was obedient on my behalf. He went to the cross, atoned for my sins. He is my righteousness. And so the Christian has a different relationship to the law. If we are born of God, we don't seek to obey God's commandments to earn righteousness because Christ alone is our righteousness before God. Now God's law serves to guide us in how to love both God and others. We see this in Jesus' response to being asked what the greatest commandment is in Matthew 22, 34 through 40. If you remember, a scribe comes to him, and they're trying to stump Jesus, so they're sending, hey, he's a smart guy. He's probably got a good question. Just there's all these times within the gospel where somebody comes up and, and asks a question, and you can see by the context of their question that they're trying to corner Jesus into saying something that can get him into trouble. And so here's Jesus' response. The scribe says, hey, pick, pick a commandment, and then make a case for why that's the best commandment. And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus summarizes the law as love God and love others. The law and the prophets, everything that was written, it's all about love. Loving God and loving others. And so those born of God show their love for God and for others, not just by word, but by their deeds. We can look at the Ten Commandments for examples of this. How do those born of God love God? Remember, God is in need of nothing from us. He was God before he made us. He existed in Trinity. He wasn't lonely. He, he's not just looking for something to do. He is fine without us. So how do we love that God who needs nothing from us? By not having any other gods before him not having any other gods above or beside the one true triune God. He alone is our God. And when we have him as our only God, we love him. We, we love him, you Christian love him, by not making idols. And again, this doesn't just mean you, you know, grab a chunk of wood and carve it up and make it look like some scary thing and put it up in your home and bow down to it. No, no. Uh, idols today are, are sports, our career, money, house, the American dream. And saying, these things are all entrusted to me and given to me if I have them uh, so that I would make much of Christ. And so they're not gonna be my idols. I'm not gonna worship. I'm not gonna bow down to my career and do everything for my career. I'm gonna do everything for Jesus. And so that's how you love God. Don't make idols. Don't make your career or sports or money or your hobbies more important than God. Don't make yourself or anybody else more important than God. Worship God. That's how you love God. You love God by not using his name in vain. That means treating it as if it's just another name or another word to use when you're frustrated or you're really angry to show emotion. God's name is the holiest of holy names. And because you are born of God and you love God, you treat it with reverence and awe. That's your God. One of my old Lutheran theology teachers said, that whenever somebody uses God's name in vain, uh, what I like to do is say, oh, you know him? That's my God. You know him? I know him too. And I always thought that was funny. And, and, and I think it's a, maybe a helpful way for us to say, 
That's name, that name that you just used, that's a precious name. It's not a name to be used lightly or because you're angry or, or, or frustrated. That's the name of the God that can forgive the sin that you just committed against him. Those born of God love God by worshiping God. He is their delight. They love God by treasuring Christ above all. Worship is an act of love. You're not just putting in time, checking boxes. Just think about that if, if you're married or if you're in a relationship or you, you have a friendship and, and you just go there, you're like, yeah, we'll just get through this, this meal together. I know we got the babysitter, everything's lined up. We're just gonna sit here and, yep, I love you. No, no, it's a joy. I get to be with you. I wanna be with you, God. And as I worship God and I sing truth about God and I hear it and I gather with the saints in my local church and I praise God, I am loving God. How do those born of God love others? They do it by honoring their parents. So if you're a young child and we encourage our children, I know there's an agenda here because they're my children, but, but son, one of the ways that you show your love for God is by honoring your mother and father. We're not perfect. We're gonna sin, we're gonna need to repent. And, and if we do sin, you're free to remind us of that respectfully. But if you love, you love God, son, then out of love for God, you'll honor your parents. And you're gonna struggle with that. And I'm gonna remind you of the gospel when you sin against your mother or against me. But if you love God, honor. And th this includes us adults. We're children as well. And God says that we have certain responsibilities to our, our parents. Even if they, they failed us, they were Christians, they didn't pass the gospel on to us. We love God by caring for them and seeking to minister to them and sharing the gospel with them. We, of course, we love people by not murdering them. That's definitely loving. You know, if you murder somebody, it's hard to say you love them. Uh, but, but not only that, we, we love by protecting life from the womb to the tomb. And that's why we Christians open our mouths. That's why some of us go and, and we, we are involved in different groups and agencies because we love people. We love God and we love others. And so we're committed to protecting life from the womb to the tomb. Also, it means that as Jesus stated, we don't hate other people. It doesn't matter if they're in a different country, if they vote differently from us, if they look differently from us. We, we love them and we don't hate them because we're born of God. It means not stealing from others, but protecting others' possessions. Somebody steals something, you don't say, I don't know, it's not me, it's not my problem. No, hey, they just took that from you. That's a pencil. I don't care if it's just a pencil. Give it back, right? Because you love people. You love people by not lying, but telling the truth, by not coveting what God has given to others. Remember, if, if somebody has something that's really cool and you really like, you're like, that would be awesome to have. And then your heart starts to shift to like, but I want that one. Well, then you're saying, God, you don't know. You don't know what to do. You're not as wise as me because you should have given that to me. And I'm gonna start to think about and start daydreaming about having that and it can be a spouse, it can be a friendship, it can be whatever. And so we love others by not coveting. If you're born of God, his commandments will not be a heavy burden because as Jesus said in Matthew eleven thirty, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. God's law is now a guide for how to love him and love others, revealing our sin, our need for Christ, trusting in him, and then living a life that honors God. The third truth that John states in this passage about you if you are born of God is in verses four and five. You will overcome the world by faith in the Son of God. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If you are born of God, you have been freed from bondage to sin by the miracle of the new birth. 
Jesus is your new master. Jesus is your king. Your allegiance is with him. Being born of God removes the spiritual blindness you once lived in. The world is not your greatest priority anymore. You don't think like the world anymore. You think more and more like Jesus. You see him rightly as the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord of heaven and earth. Being born of God enables you to respond to the gospel of grace. God did a work in you and you say, who am I? Woe is me, I am undone. I repent and I trust in Jesus alone. With the new birth, God has given you a new heart. And this new heart has new affections, new desires. It treasures Christ above all. That's why we've made that part of our mission statement. The Christian life is not a life of drudgery. It's not a heavy burden life. It's hard at times, yes. There's a struggle at times, but it's a, it's a life of joy in Christ because we have the greatest treasure that God could ever give himself. God's regenerating work in you has made this all happen. The spirit gave you life and now you walk by faith and overcome the world, not by trusting in your own strength. There's this tendency that some Christians can kind of fall into. It's almost as if they set aside Christ and they they go so deep into themselves and they say, I'm an overcomer. I think there's even a really popular song on positive, encouraging radio right now with that. And it might be a fine song. I haven't dug into theology. I suspect maybe there's some things that I would, struggle with. Maybe Christ seems to be more front and center there. But, but this is dangerous. You see, apart from Christ, we are not overcomers. Apart from Christ, we don't have the victory. As Christians, our strength, our power is still in Christ, by faith in Christ. The life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. The, the reformers talked about three aspects of saving faith. The first one is knowledge. If you're born of God, you know who Jesus is and what he did. You know that he is the God-man, the Christ, the son of God who lived a sinless life, who died a substitutionary sin-atoning death. He was raised bodily from the dead for your justification. You know these facts. The next one was, was that you, you don't just know them, but you believe them. Saving faith in Christ doesn't just mean that, that, again, you just think this is good stuff. Many know about Christianity. They've heard the gospel, but they do not believe that it is really true. And this saving faith also includes this. You trust in him, who he is and what he did for you, that the gospel is your hope, that Jesus is your savior and he is Lord. That's what it means to have faith in the son of God. That's how you overcome the world. How do you overcome temptation? Is it just by saying, hey, I'm strong enough. I got confidence. I've tried that. I've tried, it doesn't work. You, you need Jesus after he saves you. You still need Jesus. He is the power. He is your power to overcome. You can be doing so good, right? Man, this isn't a problem for me anymore. I'm looking at the right things. I'm using the right words. I'm enjoying God. I'm worshiping him. He is my delight. And all of a sudden what happens? Something shiny in the world comes along. Ooh, that's kind of nice over there too. Jesus, hold on, hold on, you stay there. Ooh, let's play with this over here. How do you overcome that? You've got all of a sudden gripped and pulled towards the things of the world. How do you overcome sin? You've fallen in it. You, you realize I've been making something or someone other than Christ my greatest treasure. How are you led to repentance when you sin? It is Christ. Faith in Christ keeps you from succumbing to lies and embracing heresy. It's this faith in Christ that overcomes the world. It's a, it's a faith that is a gift from God given to those who are born of God. Friends, we're not strong enough to overcome 
the world. But if we are born of God, we know that we are weak, but Christ is our strength. Christ is our victory. Christ is how we overcome by faith. For we believe what Jesus said in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will. You will. Not you might. Not maybe some of us. You will have tribulation. You will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Christ is the overcomer. Christ is your strength, your victory. Church, so many things in life are earned. Scouts earn their patches. Students earn their degrees, unless they have a really wealthy family member or you know, celebrity who can buy it for them. Employees earn their promotions. Athletes earn their spot on the team. But that is not how it works in the kingdom of God. You don't earn your place. God gives it to you by his grace because Christ has purchased it for you. Not in general, not, hey, I'll just purchase a plot for whoever wants to come in the plot. He purchased it for you. We don't work to have the right to become born of God. It is a work of God accomplished by the Holy Spirit. We don't believe so that we can be born of God. Doesn't, God doesn't look down and say, you know what, this one's got a lot of faith. Where'd they get that from? They look under that one corner over there where I hid some faith. They picked it up and they, they oh, look at it. Yeah, you, I'll take you. No, you don't believe so that you can be born of God. You don't love God and others in order to be born of God. He, God doesn't look down and say, oh, so loving, so loving. Let's bring them in, son, spirit. Come on. All right, yeah, pick that one over there because they're so loving. We don't over- overcome the world so that we can be born of God. He doesn't say, really strong over there. I need a captain to lead, the, lead my soldiers against the army of Satan. No, we believe, we love we overcome because we are born of God. Will a Christian at times struggle? Yes, we will. I will, you will. But if you're born of God, these things will be true of you. You will believe that Jesus is the Christ. You will love God and those born of him, and you will overcome the world by faith in the Son of God. Why is all of this so important? Because it's true. Because the Bible teaches it. Because it presses strongly. It pushes. It destroys our pride. But here's another thing related to 1 John, why all this is important, because this is in 1 John, born of him, born of him. Because if you see this Christian, if you believe this Christian, if you enjoy this glorious truth, it will produce in you greater assurance of your salvation. Because you will not go back to the moment. You will not go back to this or that. You'll go back to Christ. And you'll say, he is the one who's got me. He's the one who saved me. He is the one that I am trusting in. Not me, but him. And so because I want true Christians to have assurance, you need to wrestle with, and ultimately, it is my prayer that you will embrace this glorious truth. That you are born of God, not because you chose to be, but because he chose you to be. And it will fuel you, Christian, through the good times and the bad times, to worship and to delight in Christ. Let's pray. God in heaven, I do pray that this truth, this glorious, wonderful, amazing truth of how it is that you save sinners, that you bring life where there was once death, would make its way into our minds and down to our hearts, that it would fuel more and more missions in this church and throughout your universal church, that a greater joy in your sovereignty and salvation would lead us to pray bigger prayers, lead us to to sing louder songs, 
lead us to open our mouths, not to, to sit on the couch more, but to get off the couch and to proclaim the gospel, knowing that you have people that will hear the same gospel that we believed and are proclaiming, that you will, by your mysterious and awesome grace, save out of darkness and bring into light. I do pray as well for our own hearts that this truth would settle even more those who doubt their assurance, that they would rest in Christ and his finished work and your saving work in regenerating them. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.